Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. In our back and forth, you pitched me the idea of deliberate controversy. So what does that mean to you? Great art should provoke. It isn't up to people to tell the artist what they want. So looking at, at films where the filmmaker seems to have gone out of their way to be deliberately provocative for one reason or another. And the films we'll be watching are Dragged Across Concrete, Last Tango in Paris, Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, Basic Instinct, Monty Python's Life of Brian, The Last Temptation of Christ, Bamboozled, and 2,000 Mules. My Dragged Across Concrete story begins with the fact that in the movie group that you support through hosting and that I frequently attend as a guest, I made us all watch Bone Tomahawk. Loved it. And it's by a filmmaker called S. Craig Zoller. It's a Western. It is a reconstruction of old myths which I think is very thoughtful and provocative, and it's filled with really, really intense violence and incredibly rich conversation. That same pattern goes through Zoller's second movie, Brawl and Cell Block 99, I think is its title, Mm -hmm. which is also where he finds his angel collaborator, Vince Vaughn. Equally brutal, equally talkative, equally genre-bending, and self-critiquing as it unravels. So by the time I read in the fall of 2018 that his third movie, Dragged Across Concrete, was coming to theaters after appearing at the Venice International Film Festival, I thought, this one's going to be for me. But the trouble is, the movie actually hangs on the lead actor, Mel Gibson, who, by 2018, was becoming more of a scoundrel figure in popular culture because he's a bristly, difficult guy for a mix of different habits that he's got. Among them, an ability to offend... Jewish folks, <laughs> non-Catholics, <laughs> women, women, etc., etc., et yeah. particularly as he's begun espousing his private spiritual beliefs through his public art, beginning with something like the Passion of the Christ and continuing forward, and his own infrequent but true brushes with law enforcement, being pulled over for traffic infractions and then sounding off to cops. In other words, yeah. Mel Gibson doesn't seem to be the cool uncle I was hoping he was going to be. Yeah, well, he seemed, I think he's pretty, pretty heavy drinking, too. Which I think might be, you know, sort of the 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 background of many of these sort of public outbursts that now kind of tar him. Mel Gibson, despite whatever's going on in his personal life, and we have never met. I've got no skin in the game defending the guy, but I've always responded to him. He's he's uh, you know uh, hate him if you want. I'm not saying that I love him either, but he's I haven't seen him turn in a bad performance. He's magnetic. He he really is. He he has been a machine of um, attraction to the eye and the ear since he was in Tim back in the 70s. Yeah. And now he's long in tooth and firmly in his 60s. All of his physical beauty has not left him. He's just become an older physically beautiful man. He's like Kurt Russell. That's exactly they, right. They both and, age and of very course, well. <laughs> Kurt Russell was the fine for Bone Tomahawk. Yeah. So yeah. Zoller has this talent of employing established actors in things that work with all of their greatness, but applying it in a different way. To get down to the nitty-gritty of this thing, 
Right Across Concrete is watching, I think, arguably, three different stories unravel all at once that ultimately all pay off with one another. We're watching a couple of cops. Detective Brett Ridgman, that's Mel Gibson, and his junior partner, Detective Anthony Larissetti, that's Vince Vaughn. They're not crooked, but they're old school, meaning that they act on racist impulses to pull down the criminals and get bad people off the streets. They are punished for doing exactly that because they rough up a Latino gang member to get his drug stash away from being sold, and it's caught on videotape. They're suspended without pay, and both of them need money. The elder, because he's got a sick wife and a child and can't hardly pay for his lifestyle based on payroll from the local police department, and the younger wants to propose to his mixed-race lawyer girlfriend and build a new life together. They need money, and they've been taken off the payroll. That's one story. The next story concerns a very persuasive and charismatic guy named Henry Johns, played by Tori Kittles, which is a fresh performer to me, although he's got a track record of lots of work. I found him wonderful. He's next con who's just left the pen, and he realizes to support his disabled younger brother and his sometime prostitute drug-using mother and keep them both in the straight and narrow, he's got to come up with a windfall. So he donates his services to the third story, which is about a guy who's trying to steal some gold these three stories all come to a head when the bad guys robbing the bank, employing this young black man and his friend to be their muscle, get tracked by the cops who want to take the bank robber's robbery money for themselves, and everybody wants a payoff. Of course, it all goes wrong when nothing works to plan, and people start to die. When watching it, um, I, you know, I was thinking to myself, like, okay, when and how are these storylines going to converge? Right. All three of those kind of plot lines really sort of have to be considered to appraise what the whole thing is kind of about. Yeah, because the procedural component of watching these two cops do their work, first we meet them while they're on a stakeout trying to bring down a guy who they know has a stash of both money and drugs, and they know that he's going to sell these drugs and flood a marketplace near schools using children as his bag boys and girls to sell his product. And so we spend a lot of time watching them on stakeout. Where's mine? Spilled. You didn't think to go back and get me another? Accelerated the event. There was a little time and less inclination. Prick. I thought you'd be okay with me just telling you about mine. Nope. But they're not attuned to the way that their behavior, when brought down on the wrong person, even if that person is a criminal, can look like coded white racist and white supremacist behavior because it does look like that until you understand their motivation. When we're watching our young black ex-con Henry figure out how to care for his brother and mother, and he's got an old friend named Biscuit that's played by the big muscular Michael J. White, yeah. their buddies just trying to make sure they can care for their own. They have soft hearts. They're not mean guys and they don't want to hurt somebody. And they interestingly, in the course of this caper, they don whiteface to be incognito, mm -hmm. to figure out a way to be a front for these white dudes in masks who are going to actually rob this bank. And we get to watch those guys organize their efforts to get their equipment together, to build out their super tank armored car that nobody can get into. We spend a good hour and 45 minutes watching all three of these separate parts kind of unwind before they collapse on one another. Yeah, And the collapse is... The two young black men who are muscle for the white dudes are forced to sit in the cockpit of this armored car with guns at their backs, knowing they're probably going to be executed once the money is distributed. We also know that they're being trailed 
by the cops in a car at some distance to try to figure out where the exchange of dollars is going to happen. So the cops can rob the bank robbers and pay for their lives. Aside from Mel Gibson as in the central role, why else do you think this movie was not released? The one thing that I had read about this was that it basically promotes police brutality. Uh, another is, of course, that he sort of trades in racist or sexist, or I also read the term nativist tropes, and that his excuse is that he writes, he just tries to write his characters the way they he thinks they would be. Well, let's just let me just pause on that. Our organized lead character, Detective Brett Ridgman, Mel Gibson, is a man who self-describes his life. I'm approaching 60. I have a disabled wife who was once a police officer, but who has MS, and she is increasingly in pain and debilitated. My paycheck has not changed reliably since I was 27. His rank has never improved because he's too rough on the street criminals that he busts, although he's put away thousands of people doing the public good. He can't pay for his ill wife. He's got a daughter who's regularly harassed by other kids her age because they're forced to live in a, in a bad part of town because he can't afford better on the one salary. And that seems to be a character who's real because it's commonplace for sort of blue-collar-ish jobs, heads of family who can't keep up with the expenses of a family the instant there's a problem, mm -hmm. a health crisis, a child that's unexpected, sending somebody off to college, a house burns down, an elder needs care. And these are the ways that these characters are forced to then dig into their lifestyle, into what they have uh, created for themselves professionally and otherwise. And that's exactly what Ridgeman's all about. I'm stuck, but I can't unstick myself. I can't learn a new trick. This is what I do, and I do it well. But I was okay when my wife was working, and she too is a police officer. We share a worldview, but I can't have her putting her health in jeopardy because I can't make ends meet. That can't happen. And if that guy is your point of view character for at least one of the three central stories, that's an important consideration. What would he do? Right. Well, yeah. What is his worldview going to be? If he can't earn money for the next six or eight weeks while he's on suspension, but he's still got to pay his mortgage or his rent or whatever his expenses are, he's still got to pay for that med so his wife can, can have pain medications and, and be able to make dinner. If he has to still do these things and he's got to make ends meet, what are you left with? Well, he knows right. how criminals behave. He can run them down. He can steal from criminals because arguably that's okay. And that's kind of the logic of it. So I agree that's exactly what Zoller has drawn up here. Yeah. It's also true that he's a brutal guy. Yeah. And that he does see in stereotype. And he's constantly questioning gendered values of today's world that he doesn't make sense of. It's a guy or a girl singing his song. Can't tell. Not that there's much of a difference these days. I think that line was obliterated the day men started saying, we're pregnant, and their wives were. The binaries that his life has been based on have blended, which many of us celebrate in the world of today, but he is somebody who can't keep up with that. Right. And right. he doesn't feel badly about it because, well, he keeps the bad guys off the street. Right. And bad guys should be harassed. Right. And they should be disturbed and right. dislodged and treated badly because they're bad they're, guys. They're bad guys. There seems to be, in recent times, with the you know the push for defund the police and this kind of stuff, this sort of notion that there are no bad people out there. 
but there are only bad institutionalized things against you know all these poor people who aren't bad they've just run afoul of like a, a crooked justice system right a system that creates levers of advancement and loss and if you're always on the loss side of that the quickest way to advance is to sort of skirt the system's rules which of course the system can't allow so you need law enforcement right right and uh mel gibson uh detective ridgeman is certainly a character who doesn't buy that for a second he his truth based on his life's work and his experience is that no there's lots of really bad people Mm -hmm. and they need to be dealt with appropriately now i i was thinking about that when i pushed off of this movie and finished watching it thinking about our upcoming conversation what do i have to say about this would I invite somebody to watch this based on my reaction? And I think it's it's a yes. It's a definite yes. But that has to be bracketed with all kinds of conditions. Because this is not a movie most people are going to sit through. Both because it's extremely long. Yeah. Uh, for the amount of material that happens. The plot is... It's not that it's thin, but the plot... It can take 20 minutes to set up a plot point. Yeah. We, we don't get to the real meat of the action for... Probably the first hour and a half, yeah. hour and forty-five minutes until, bang! Finally, everything sort of jumps off, um, and I, I I know that that can test the patience of a, of a lot of people. And I'm sure that it has and will for the very select few number of people who are going to pull this off a shelf or stream it or borrow it from a friend. Yeah. Now, when the violence does jump off, it's quite fast and really, really graphic, but it's also Given how long the movie is, the violence is also pretty fast moving. Yeah, I'm thinking about a. a it's it's almost a silly supporting character. Jennifer Carpenter plays Kelly Summer, and she has collaborated with Zoller before. She has a small role that takes up a lot of screen time in her section of the story. It just kind of gets dropped in the middle of things. Yeah, it's really kind of weird when it comes up. Yeah, I, mean, I was. You were just kind of like, oh wow, he. Really likes introducing, like, brand new characters. She's a bank teller or bank worker in the bank that's about to be robbed. And when the robbers show up to rob the bank, she gets entangled with them and she is she's executed. It happens so fast that on the one hand you can't believe, wow, this named actress who's kind of got some weight. She has been the headliner in small movies. She's been on TV. She's a, a comer. They're going to just evacuate her from the movie yeah. in a couple of seconds yeah. when she's finally murdered. And, as and quickly as she gets there. And it is that fast. There's another sequence later in the piece when Henry's friend Biscuit, the two of them are, of course, muscle for these white bank robbers. Biscuit is shot up. He's going to die. And he's trying to explain, please tell my mom that I love her, that kind of a speech. Right. And he's just suddenly blasted and he's just gone. But he's swallowed a key that's important to unlocking the vault of monies that these bank robbers have stolen. And so they drag his body into their armored car so they can open up they his can, belly and can, find the key and unlock the box. That, yeah, it, it's gruesome. Yeah. It's largely in shadow, so the specific details aren't that specific. And why you have to spend time studying this is it's unnecessary, but in a way it's kind of, ooh, goody, we're going to watch something gross to yeah. watch something gross. Which I admittedly understand you don't need. Well, a filmmaker, I mean, you've got a lot of power, really. When right. you have a captive audience, and you, you can really put the screws to them. And you, by and that point, so you're that two hours in. really fun. Yeah. You know? I mean, from my own experience, getting people to walk out of a film because it was so <laughs> off-putting, we were stoked. Yeah. We were like, yes, we did it. We hit you, the mark. You know, so that's, I mean, you want your art to provoke a reaction, so it might have been gratuitous, but certainly 
I know I was squirming in my seat. I found a lot of the movie works that way. The dialogue is so sharp and on the nose. They speak so very, very well. There's that phrase, maybe we've talked about this before, esprit d'escalier, right. French phrase for you You learn and think up the phrase or what you should have said in a controversy after after the fact. Right, it was too late. These are characters who don't have any problems springing exactly what they want to say and often very interesting language as they need it to be said. Right. It doesn't happen later. It happens in live conversation. So it can be a pleasure to listen to Vaughn and Gibson banter almost as a married couple. Amen. I've been listening to and smelling that for the last 98 minutes. Best part of a stakeout, other than when it ends, is when you're eating. A single red ant could have eaten it faster. To be in our time, in our year, and not make a reference to Quentin Tarantino is foolish. Yeah, I, I, you know, really, I don't even consider Pulp Fiction to be among his top films, not uh, let alone his best, and yet, still, here we are, almost 30 years out, and we're still seeing the, the ripples. Yeah. A big word that comes to mind when I draw that comparison, because I've heard it so many times to so many different filmmakers over so many years that I'm tired of it, and so I reflexively don't want really to say this to you, but what... Tarantino gave young artists roughly our age and younger. What he gave us was permission. He gave us permission to make our silly pop cultural fiefdoms of interest yeah. into the subject matter that we can make characters talk about endlessly and that there could be an audience for that. Mm -hmm. When it's twinned with enough of a plot mechanism to compel us into frequently profane and violent circumstances that are entertaining. And one of the permissive things that he allowed and drew us in through the back door of his great successes these last 30 years is that you could make big, long scenes where the only real thing that happens is some characters talk. In some of these scenes, <laughs> the camera doesn't even switch points of view. It just, right. it just, just sits on the dashboard, watching them through the windshield of their car and stake out as they just go back and forth, complaining to each other for minutes. But the next thing that it gives us is a willingness to regard the fact that human conversation can be as plot-interesting as a car chase. When people who are skilled at delivering dialogue, in other words, very good actors, can really do the job, and these are good actors, yeah. it's enough. It's enough to watch them raise an eyebrow at one another. Human interaction on a very, very closed scale of very specific activities can be equal to or better than watching a tank shoot an airplane out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is plot but not the way most people observe and think about what makes a good movie good. So this movie takes that permission that Tarantino bequeathed all of us as Grandpa Tarantino and makes that really what the whole thing is about. It doesn't borrow the convoluted narrative pattern of a puzzle because this happens in sequential time. Yeah. It's very conventional that way. But it does involve three separate strands of story that eventually collapse on one another each of them with long sequences of people just chewing on words. Mm -hmm. You have to accept that. Yeah. And, you know, I, that's going to be off-putting for some people, but I think for other people, it's just they're going to, they're going to love it. I mean, in the end, what, what's Dragged Across Concrete about? It's about good people who are compromised and do terrible things that they know are terrible things that they know they shouldn't do, but they're still going to do them because they can justify it personally because they feel they have to. In or other words, out of hardship or whatever. 
And there's always an excuse, but they've decided that their excuse is finally the thing that's going to let me loose. Which is really, which is, it's funny because I, 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 I didn't really think of this as a noir, but when, you know, because I do consider myself a fan of classic noir, I, I watch quite a bit of it, that really is sort of the central conceit. Somebody who is good, finding themselves on the wrong side of the tracks... And there's an opportunity out to of, do worse, to get back, right? Or do you live this way? Right, right. Yeah. Out of I, with with desperation hanging over them, and you always have a reason, right? But is the reason good enough to compromise the entirety of your faith in self and your moral code? Right, as, as they say, the the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. which really, so in in that way, this really could be considered a noir or a neo noir, I guess, because. Really, all the uh, the with the not not the actual heist guys themselves, but the cops and um, the 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 ex cons really both are doing bad stuff out of a perceived necessity. Yeah. An additional feature of this movie I really enjoy is that our leads just die. Not that it was telegraphed or the the film was poorly written or they give it away early, but I just knew. At least they're going to die. They have to die. There's just no way. And indeed, they do. So to give away the ending, if you don't want to hear, yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah, uh, Henry, the surviving muscle of the crew, is the one who survives all of this. Vince Vaughn's character, Anthony, he's killed through a hostage who's forced to murder him, or have her family murdered by the bank robbers. I know it's getting complicated, but the fact is, we end up thinking Ridgman and Henry are going to walk away with all the money after they've exterminated everybody and they're the the final survivors. They're going to equitably cut the pile. They don't, because they don't trust each other. Henry emerges the victor. But he agrees, as Ridgman dies next to him on a car bench, that I'll look after your wife and daughter. And in the end of the movie, it's, it's ultimate sequence. That's exactly what he does. He takes all of the gold and sets himself up with a palatial estate. And he sends the way of Ridgeman's widow and daughter a small box of gold that they can use to remake their life. And they indeed seem happy. I do admit it was a little a little hard for me to swallow because certainly it's not as if the hunt for that gold just stops. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, I've never tried to fence gold myself. <laughs> right. But let me then bring in a satisfying part of that unsatisfying ending. That we watch Henry and his younger brother go play games in this magnificent wall of games. And they decide they're going to play the old game they used to play when they were poor called Shotgun Safari. Safari. Where we go into the song Shotgun Safari as written by our director and several collaborators and as performed by the OJs. Right. Shotgun Safari is both magnificently awful and awfully magnificent. Yeah, agreed. If a person makes submission to the permitted kind of deliberate controversy that Zoller is trying to put us through, which references a lot of other filmmaking patterns that some of us are aware of, and allows us to digest this very amoral environment of formerly good men descending into crime for reasons they rationalize, which we know are bad, only to come out destroyed by it, we can have a deliberately great experience. Yeah. But if we don't do all of that, 
what we're left with is odd set pieces. Yeah, oh, that was boring. Yeah. The the whole thing has to be consumed in at, at once in the way it's supposed to be in order for the whole thing to work. Artists, it's their job to ask the audience to step up. There's one other key detail that I really have to mention, and that's the importance of Don Johnson. Yeah. Because <laughs> he plays the boss of the two cops. He is Chief Lieutenant Calvert. A couple more years out there, and you're going to be a human steamroller, covered with spikes and fueled by bile. There's a lot of imbeciles out there. This is Blockbusters and Birdwalks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin Kirai and Ed Rosa. Boop, boobity doo.